than something squirrely. It froze. I just want to ask, are we done with the raffles? Yes. yes. We're done with the raffles. The real question this weekend is, are the raffles done? Because I really wanted that $5 gift card to Starbucks. All right, we're going without notes. Okay. Um, guys, it has been a good weekend for me. I want to thank you for having me out. Uh, it, it, you guys have encouraged me. Encouraged, and and I just I, I thank you so much for last night. Uh, we stood in here for four hours, and you guys came up to this microphone and, and poured out your hearts, and that took a lot of courage. You guys, a lot of you, you shared some really deep stuff. You shared some stuff that you've never shared before, and like I told you last night, last night was a first step to your healing, and I'm looking forward to hearing the stories of what happens after this weekend. I'm looking forward to seeing how God is going to use your stories in ministry to others. And it's on that note that I wanted to move into what we were going to talk about this morning because we had a kind of an introduction on Friday, then we talked about loving God, and then we talked about loving one another, and this morning we'll get to talk about loving the lost. And all of these things work together. It starts with our relationship with God. When we love God, when we make that first commandment, the one we're going to be faithful to, first commandment faithful, as we put God above everything else, these other things become possible to get in order in our life. When we love God, we're able to love one another like He commands us to. And in doing so, we're able to love the lost like He commands us to and like He models for us. And there's no better example for us to follow than the example of Jesus Christ. Do you guys know why He came into the world? He tells us in Luke 19.10, we got it on the screen up here. For the Son of Man came to do what? The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. It says in Matthew 20, verse 28, the Son of Man didn't come to be served. He came to serve. And what's the greatest way that He came to serve? What did He do? He gave His life as a ransom for many. Spoke just briefly yesterday about how he didn't have to do it that way. The way he did it, he chose to go die on a cross. He chose to be tortured to death in front of his mom. He didn't have to do it that way. We also talked about the characteristics of God and how God is uh, omnipotent. He's, he's, he's all-powerful. He's uh, all-knowing. And then he's all-present. He knows everything about us. He knows everything about this world. It even says that all things were created by Jesus and for Jesus, through Jesus and for Jesus. He knows what's going to happen before it happens, not because he can see the future so much as because he's already in the future, because he's not limited by time and space. He knows everything. In his sovereignty and knowing everything, he still gives us free will. He knows the choices we're going to make before we make them, but He gives us the free will to make them, even though we're going to make bad ones sometimes. He lets us learn from our mistakes, or He lets us choose to live in unrepentance. It's up to us. We get to choose. But we have that ability to choose because we were created in the image of God, and guess what? God gets to choose too. And God chose to come into the earth as man. And He chose to save our sins the way He saves them. Through the cross. 
And there's a scripture in Isaiah 53 that puzzled me for so many years. Because a few years ago, I dived into a study of the crucifixion and the horror of it. Let's throw that up there. Oh, I'm sorry. Let's go to the next one. It was the Lord's will that Isaiah. It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. Have you guys ever read Isaiah 53 all the way through? Do you guys know what Isaiah 53 is about? Yeah. The whole chapter, it's in Isaiah. Isaiah was around around 600 BC, 600 years before the birth of Jesus. And in Isaiah 53, he talks so explicitly about Jesus, it is so clear that he is talking about Jesus that for a long time, scholars and academics didn't believe that that was part of the original Bible, it's so clear. For a long time, the oldest copy of the Old Testament that we had was from the 800s AD, years after Jesus. And so in academic circles, they said that chapter was added to the Bible by Christians after the death, burial, resurrection, or supposed resurrection of Jesus, because they didn't believe in the resurrection, after, after Jesus was here, to, to, to spread this myth of Christianity. And then back in the 40s, 1940s, when I wasn't born, was anybody here born in the 40s? Yeah, I think, no, we weren't. <laughs> Long time ago, uh, back in the 1940s, um, there was a shepherd boy in Palestine looking for a lost goat. And, or sheep, I can't remember, one of, the, one of those. Some little animal uh, that he was looking for, that he wanted to find. And he, he was walking past a cave in Palestine, and he picks up a rock. He doesn't want to go in the cave because it's dark and kind of scary. So he throws a rock inside the cave, and he hears pottery break. And he's like, what is that? And so he goes in, and guess what he found? A little something called the Dead Sea Scrolls. You guys heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? Yeah. There was a community called the Qumran community that lived out in the desert. They were kind of crazy. Uh, they were Jews, and uh, you know they, they were even more hardcore than the Pharisees, and they had all this writing and stuff. Um, but we found over 20,000 documents in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and uh, we're still deciphering them today, by the way. We don't have them all done. Hopefully, in the next 100 years, we'll know what all those say. Uh, but the really neat thing about this find is they found uh, nearly the entirety of different pieces of the Old Testament. And one of the best preserved documents in that find was an entire scroll of the book of Isaiah called the Great Scroll of Isaiah. Matter of fact, on my iPad for the lock screen, that's what the lock screen is. This is the Great Scroll of Isaiah from the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, they put it on display. And guess what's in there? Isaiah 53. The whole thing. Uh, one of the oldest things in there, and this is just a side note, if you go read Daniel 2, the uh, statue of Nebuchadnezzar, with, uh, the, he saw in a dream with the different metals, different stat, uh, the different metals making up the statue that predicts world history. Yeah. Like, Babylon's going to be the ruling power, then Persia's going to be the ruling power, then Greece is going to be the ruling power, then Rome's going to be the ruling power, and then there's going to be this rock that comes up and it's greater than all the kingdoms of the whole earth. Jesus? That's the oldest thing we found in the Dead Sea Scrolls so far. So put that in your pipe and smoke it. <laughs> By the way, I sell Christianity. If you ain't smoking what you're selling, something's wrong. Right? Sorry, old pothead joke. Uh, old pothead joke. Uh, 
My point in this, though, is we serve a God who could have chosen how he came into the world. He could have chosen what he did while he was in the world. He did choose what he did while he was in the world. He could have chosen a different time. He could have chosen a different socioeconomic status. He could have been a king or you know, born in wealth or born in comfort. He chose to be born in the first century. At a time when one country, one empire ruled the known world, when one empire had built roads between all the different places for the first time, travel was easy between different cities. He came at a time when people knew what a disciple was in terms of Greek philosophy. If you were a disciple of someone, you were a student endeavoring to become like your teacher. He chose all these factors that are present. He came into the world at that time, born a poor kid. Wasn't even that good looking. You know, it says in Isaiah, he was common. He didn't, he wouldn't, there was nothing, no beauty or majesty to draw anybody to him. He was just a regular dude. He swung a hammer for a living. And then he lives this perfect life. Even though it says in Hebrews, he was tempted in every way. He was tempted like we were in every way. As he struggled with sexual temptation. He struggled with lust. He struggled with being tempted to pride. He struggled with being tempted to slander. God, he struggled in every way. But he never sinned. He never did. He modeled for us what it's like to be the complete man, the perfect man. The man who is fully in love with God, the Father, fully dependent upon Him, fully engaged in prayer, fully engaged in Bible study, fully engaged in loving others, fully engaged in being the example that He needed to be. And the crazy thing is, he knew that even though that's the way he was going to live, even though those were the choices he was going to make, he was going to be rejected, he was going to be despised, he was going to be abused, he was going to be mistreated, and ultimately he was going to die. Yet this was all the Lord's will. It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And so how did he suffer? Like I said earlier, a few years ago, I dived into this topic of crucifixion. I, I sort of knew dying on the cross was bad. I didn't know how bad. I didn't know that the Persians had invented crucifixion back in the 400s, and it had been perfected at the time of Rome. I mean, they had it down to science in Rome. The Romans, they crucified everybody that wasn't Roman. They'd come take you over, you know, there's, there's, there's instances where they crucified 10,000 people from a single city and just lined the road for many miles with bodies being crucified. People dying, hanging there, dying. And they did this to subjugate people. This empire of iron, with its iron teeth that crushes and devours. They would, they would take you over and they would make... They would make fighting back so horrible, like the consequences for it, so horrible that you lost your will to fight back. You didn't want to fight back anymore against these guys. Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. That's we rule with an iron fist and nobody stands up to us. And so crucifixion for the masses was this 
uh, control device where it was just this horrible thing that was done out in public. Like people would be crucified uh, like out in front of a mall or, or Walmart, the grocery store. Like in Rome, you'd go to the grocery store, go to the market, there'd be people being crucified out there where you could see them. Little kids. Little kids walking by. They would see this growing up. And they didn't crucify their own citizens, only the people guilty of the highest forms of treason, if you were a Roman citizen, would be crucified. They didn't crucify women, generally speaking. Very rarely they would. But if they did, they would turn the woman to face the cross because nobody thought you should look on the face of a woman in that kind of agony. Because it was so horrible. It was so horrible, the pain on the cross was so bad that they actually invented a word to describe the horror of the pain because they didn't have another they didn't have another word in their vocabulary to capture it. The word excruciating means from the cross. They had to make up a new word. It was so bad. And the way it kills you is you hang there. And they would uh, sometimes tie your hands, sometimes they would put nails uh, through the bones, they would put nails through the feet, and you would hang there. And as you hang there, baking in the sun during the day, freezing at night, over time these muscles go into a spasm. And you guys have ever had a bad spasm? That muscle just tightens up and tightens up and tightens up. Well, that happens over the hours and the days sometimes. The muscle tightens over your chest and your sternum and pushes down your lungs to the point where you can't even draw a breath. And the only way to get a breath in is to very painfully and forcefully push up on those nails through your feet. <gasps> tenses, relaxes the muscles that are tense and you're able to get a breath and then you go back down and the process starts over again. Starts over until you literally do not have enough gas in the tank to push up on those nails. It was designed to make you suffer as long as you could until you physically could not suffer anymore. And then you die. And not only that, being done in public, the worst kinds of people, the worst kinds of people would come up and they would spit at you, and they would cuss at you, and they would throw rocks at you, and they would slap you and smack you, and you didn't have any clothes on. I know the, the pictures we see of Jesus, he has a loincloth. They took all of your clothes off. You were crucified naked. So you got the shame of being naked. You got the shame of all these people heaping this abuse on you. They're making fun of your anatomy. They're throwing rocks to hit you in your private parts. They're doing whatever they can to make it worse. It's not them up there. They don't have to worry about it. And these are criminals, these are people who Hurt people hurt people, right? A lot of times the people hanging on the cross, they would spew curses back. They would spit at the crowd. They would try to urinate on the crowd. The foot of the cross wasn't this pristine, beautiful thing. We sing songs about going to the foot of the cross. Guys, the foot of the cross was where bodily fluids were. 
you would pass in and out of consciousness. You'd, you'd lose control of your bodily functions. So there would be feces and urine and blood and vomit and tears and sweat at the foot of the cross. That's the foot of the cross. Some people knew how it worked. Like, they knew if they could just suffocate to death, it would be over quickly. And so they would hang there intentionally and not push up on the nails or the ropes so that they would die quickly. And if the soldiers caught you doing that, there are a lot of instances where they would build a little stool to sit them on underneath their crotch so that you couldn't do that. And if you scooted off that stool, they would put a nail for your privates into that stool. So you wouldn't go anywhere. They were cruel. It was designed to be as cruel as possible. <clears throat> Some people say dying in a fire might have been worse. No, it wouldn't. You're done quickly. Roasting alive might be worse. No, that's a lot quicker. Having your skin peeled off and eaten by animals? Yeah, relatively quick. Compared to crucifixion. Guys, I've studied this. I can't find the worst way to die. I've looked at the Assyrians. I've looked at the Babylonians. I've looked at the other things the Romans did. Guys, I can't find the worst way to die. When you consider the shame and the psychological and, and all the stuff that goes on top of this, I can't think of a, better, a worse way. And I've, I've done a fair amount of study. And all that was the Lord's will. It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer like that? Really? Why? Why was it God's will to crush him and cause him to suffer like that? There's this little three-letter word. I like this word. Packs a theological punch. The little word for. F-O-R. For. Let's read these scriptures together. This answers the why. Why did Jesus die the way he died? Isaiah 53, 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Isaiah 53, 12. He bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Romans 4, 25. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 Corinthians 15.3, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. 
1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is love. 1 John 4.10 Not that we loved God. Not that we loved God. But that He loved us. And sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Why? Everything He did, He did for us. He did for me. He did for you. He did for those yet to come. And He's going to use you to bring. He chose to die in the worst way possible because like we said yesterday, He knew we were doubters. And if He didn't do something radical, if He didn't do something extreme, if He didn't do something to take away that doubt that we so naturally have in our sinful selves, He knew we would maybe never come to Him. He knew we would stay lost. And who did Jesus come to save? He came to seek and to save the lost. That's you. And that's me. And that's them. He did it because He loves us. And before he died, he got together with his close friends. And he said, this bread we're taking, they were just doing this Passover meal. This bread, this, this fruit of the vine. I want you to take this. And this bread represents my broken body. When you take it, I want you to remember me. This fruit of the vine represents my blood that's going to be spilled. When you take it, I want you to remember me. These guys didn't know what he was talking about. He hadn't been crucified already. I think we forget that sometimes. They're like, okay. Got it, Jesus. Then he goes and does what he does. And suddenly, things start to make sense. He was talking about his death. He knew ahead of time he was going to... They never looked at bread and wine the same. Do you guys realize we, we take this bread and this cup together? Jesus told us to do this because He precisely for the reason that He wants us to be reminded every single week of how much He loves us. Because guys, Christianity is not about rules. It's about relationship. And we get our relationship right when we can kind of start to grasp the love that God has for us. And that's exactly what communion is meant to remind us of. God does not want us going through life 
like duty-driven Pharisees following the rules. He wants us to act out of the love that He gives us, where the things we do in this life are a fruit of the love that He has poured out on us and is pouring out on us and will pour out on us. It all goes back to that. So guys, we're going to take a few minutes about how much time we got. Um, let's take about 15 and let's take communion and then we're going to come back for another few minutes and I'm going to share another scripture with you and uh, that will be what sends us off. But the way we're going to do communion, guys, we have it up here. And uh, I'm going to pray for us and if somebody feels like leading a song, that's fine. Um, but as you're led, just come up. If you want to come up in groups, that's fine. If you want to come up individually, that's fine. But just as you're led, spend some time in prayer. Reflect on what God did for you on the cross. And as you're led, come up and take communion. You can take it together. You can take it two by two. I don't care how you do it. You can go off and if you want to sit and pray, whatever. We're just going to take 15 minutes just to remember. It's just to remember how much God loves us. And that's what we're, we're leaving on a high note this weekend. Because what's better than the love of God? We love because He first loved us. So let's enjoy this reminder this weekend. Let's pray. God, thank You. Thank You, thank You, thank You for the love. I, I can't even... Can't even express the gratitude. There's no words. Father, I, I, I express my need to repent because I don't remember this. I go through life forgetting who I am in you. I get caught up in my day to day and then communion. Like, what, what am I thinking? God, I pray our hearts be right this morning. God, you tell us to examine ourselves. Father, so many of us have confessed sin this weekend. We've confessed shortcomings. We've been examining ourselves. Father, I pray we continue that. Where are we with you? How are we doing with you? Is there anything else that needs to be repented of? God, I pray you make that clear to us and you give us courage and strength. Because, Father, in light of the cross, in light of the cross where you've died for our sins. My little struggles seem so insignificant. The things I hold on to seem so stupid. The sins, the bad habits, the things that hold me back from being who you created me to be. Father, I repent. I pray we all repent. I pray we live in light of the cross and in light of your love. I pray that your love that you pour out on us overflow to others. God, I pray you bless us so that we can be a blessing and that you open our eyes so that we can open the eyes of others because that's your heart. Thank you, thank you, thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Open up your Bibles to Matthew 27.
begin reading in Matthew 27, verse 32. This is the account of the crucifixion of Jesus. Now up to this point, he's already been arrested. He's had the Last Supper with his apostles. He's already been kept up all night because the Jewish leaders that took him in beat him and spit on him and mocked him and threw him in this dingy dungeon or basement or wherever it was they were holding him. So he's already beat up. And they take him before the Roman governor Pilate because they didn't actually have the authority legally to kill him or carry out an execution. And so they bring him before the Roman governor Pilate who can't. And they bring all these false charges against him. He's starting an insurrection. He's teaching people not to pay taxes. He's telling people that they shouldn't follow Caesar or follow the laws. They have false witnesses come and bring accusations against him. Does Jesus defend himself? Nope. It says in Isaiah 53, as a sheep before the shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. He didn't defend himself. Pilate has no choice in his mind but to execute this man because the Jewish crowd is threatening a riot if they don't. Pilate's worried about his own skin. He had one job. Don't allow riots because when they, people riot, they don't pay taxes. That's really all we care about. So to save his own skin... He ceremonially washes his hands because he knows this is an injustice that he's about to have carried out against this man. Washes his hands, has Jesus flogged. Up to this point, he's already passing in and out of consciousness. He's already been beat up. He's already exhausted. When they flog him, they tie him to a pole. Hands up, elevated, stretched, feet down here. Handle, nine leather straps, metal hooks, broken glass, iron balls, professional Roman soldier whose job it is to make this as horrible as possible, hits him and hits him and hits him. A lot of people died from the floggings. They pierced an organ. There's an account where they hooked a guy's rib and pulled it out of his body with one of the hooks. You get flogged, you're never the same. Your, your back looks like messed up hamburger meat. Bloody. Sinews and tissue are hanging off. You're never the same. You're permanently scarred after this. So he goes through that. He's already in shock. He's already suffering from blood loss. The soldiers come. They take him to the praetorium. They surround him. They beat him. They strip him down. They cast lots for his clothes. They put a crown of thorns on his head. They're not like the thorns we have around here. Over in that part of the world, the thorns are about this long. They put it on his head, they take a stick, they hit it. They beat it into his scalp. They take a purple robe and they wrap it around him. Stick it to his back because his back's all bloody. And they just sort of wrap it around tight. And then one of them will hit him behind him. Then another one will hit him. Then another one will hit him and say, prophesy, who hit you? Who hit you? Prophesy. You know, you know things. Who hit you? They spit on him. They mock him. He's in bad shape. They take him out. They trap a 100-pound or more crossbar to his back. 
This is going to be the instrument of your death. Carry it up this hill. He's already so bad off that he can't carry it up the hill. He's already passing out. He's losing consciousness. So they get this other Jew to carry the load, which in Roman law they could get whoever they wanted to to carry something for a mile for them. Roman soldiers could. They could strip this guy named Simon from Cyrene. They say, you carry this because this guy's too weak to do it. Carry this crossbar up the hill, this dusty desert area. They lay this crossbar down. They nail it to another cross. They put a sign above which most crosses back then were a T. Jesus's is different because they put a sign above his. So they made this little extra section up here, which is the cross we see today. Now the sign. This is the king of the Jews. Here's your king, you dogs. Here's the one you've been following around. Here's who he really is in light of the powerful nation of Rome. It's this message they're sending, this mocking message they're sending, not only about Jesus, but to the people who they thought were dirt. They nail him hand and foot, very painfully, through the bones and the wrists. Maybe they did it through the palms, but they would have tied ropes because they would have ripped out wherever it hurt. They put nails through his feet, one on top of the other. Long spikes, similar to like railroad spikes. You guys ever seen a railroad spike? They're big. This would have been very painful. And then they pick him up, dig a hole, drop this cross down into this hole, and his body's weight catches. It's wrapped in pain. Somebody brought him some pain medicine. Wine mixed with gall which was a pain reliever. It would make you pass out. When you pass out on the cross, you can't push up. You die quickly. Jesus refuses the pain reliever. Later, somebody brings in wine vinegar. Guess what that does? Wakes you up. He took that. He didn't want to go to sleep. He wanted to feel it for some reason. Matthew 27, 32. I'm going to pick up. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, that's the soldiers, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right, one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you're the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests... The teachers of the law, the elders, all mocked him. He saved others, they said. Look, he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him. 
if he wants him, because he said, I'm the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also hurled insults on him. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. The final miracle of Jesus he gave up his spirit. There are some scholars who will tell you that darkness came over the land because God turned his back. Because he couldn't bear to look at his son covered with the sin of the whole world. And that Jesus made this statement, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because for a moment, he was apart from his father. And they are 100% wrong. God was there the entire time. What comes to mind when I say, I pledge allegiance? In your mind, like a tape recorder, it starts going to the flag of the United States of America. What about when I say, I don't want to grow up. I'm a Toys R Us kid. Right, it starts playing in your mind, right? In Jewish culture, they had their songbook. A lot of you guys don't know, but have you ever read the Psalms? You know how in some of our churches we have the songbook? Like the Songs of Faith and Praise or whatever it's called. Um, some churches have them, some churches don't. But for the Jews who worshipped at the temple or who worshipped at synagogue, they had the Psalms, 150 songs. And they had them memorized, just like you guys have our songs memorized. Those of you who have been around a while, neurologists don't even know why it works that way. But when we sing things, we remember them. Even if we learned songs when we were little bitty kids, we tend to remember them. It's something about the way our brain works, something about the way God created us, memory, right? It, it, we remember things. The Jews had all these songs memorized. Sometimes, if they were feeling a certain way, they would quote the first line of a song to encapsulate how they were feeling in that moment. And so they would quote the first line and the rest of the song would start playing like a tape recorder in the minds of the people, and they would be like, oh, yeah, I get it. Yeah, I get it. That's all I had to say that was the first line. And so they did this. Guys, when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you know what he's doing? He's quoting the first line of a song. Flip open to Psalm 22.
Look at this. Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Sound familiar? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises, and you, our ancestors, put their trust. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you, they cried out and were saved. And you, they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm, and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near. And there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is turned to wax. It's melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. Sound familiar? All my bones are on display. I'm naked. People stare and gloat over me. What was happening? They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. What the Roman soldiers had just done. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword. My precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouths of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. Look at this worship. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him. But has listened to his cry for help. God wasn't gone. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive, posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. Amen. He has done it. Amen. He has done it. This is not a cry of despair. 
When Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is a declaration of victory. He has done it. And he did it for you and for me. And the temple curtain tore. The Jews believed God's presence was limited to the Holy of Holies inside the sanctuary of the temple where only the high priest could go once a year for Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, to sprinkle blood on the people so that their sins would be forgiven for that year. And then all of the Jewish sacrifices, all of the holidays, all of the Old Testament was a prequel and a foreshadowing of what God had planned from the beginning to do in Jesus Christ. And when that curtain tore on that temple, the presence of God was released from that geographical location and it's not going to be long before the Holy Spirit comes and Jesus says to His disciples, it is going to be better for you when the Spirit comes and lives within your hearts. Instead of me being limited by flesh, I'm going to be within all of my disciples. And you all get to enjoy my counsel. You all get to enjoy my presence. You all get to enjoy my help. The word paraclete is what the Spirit is called the helper. And it's better for us today than it was even for the men who walked side by side with Jesus in the flesh. Because that temple curtain has been torn. Amen. And so he stays in the grave three days. The sign of Jonah. I'm going to be gone for three days in the darkness, but I'm coming back. And after three days, that stone was rolled away. And he did some funny stuff. <laughs> he came back and appeared. It says in 1 Corinthians 15 that he was his body that he had is going to be like what we have. He could fly. He could go through walls. He still ate food. Cool. You know, I like barbecue. Um, catch and tell. Uh, victory. He comes back and for about 40 days, it says in the book of Acts, he talked to his disciples about the kingdom. And they were still asking dumb questions. You know, they still knew all these uh, Old Testament prophecies about this coming king and how this king was going to be greater than any other king who'd ever existed and how he was going to rule the world and with an iron scepter. And, you know, this prophecy in Daniel about how this kingdom of the rock is going to be greater than everything else. It's going to turn all these other kingdoms to dust. And so they asked him at the beginning of Acts, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And he's like, you guys... Just go to Jerusalem and do what I say. Like, you know, go wait on the Spirit. And so they go to Jerusalem. And Acts 2 is like the climax of the story of the Bible. All these promises that were made. The covenant with Abraham. The covenant with Noah. The covenant with Moses. The covenant with David. The covenant of the land. The covenant that's called the new covenant. We now see fulfilled in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> That had to be a special time. Those 40 days after you experienced all this with the man you now know is God. Those 40 days of sitting at his feet and eating with him and laughing with him and suddenly understanding that all this stuff that 
you really weren't quite sure about that he would told you about, like the resurrection and like all this stuff, now you find out it's all 100% true. That would have been a special time, right? But you got to think his last words would be something that would stick out in your mind. Wouldn't you think? And I think he chose his last words very carefully. You guys uh, familiar with the Great Commission? Open up to Matthew 28 real quick. Matthew 28, starting in verse 18. comes to him and leaves him with this. He says, all authority. How much authority? Oh. Does all leave anything out? No. Okay, who's in charge? Jesus. Who's worthy of our worship? Jesus. Is anybody else worthy of our worship? No. All authority. All authority. In heaven? Really? He's in charge up there? Yeah. And on earth. Who's in charge down here? Jesus. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That means we should listen. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And so look at what he says. Therefore, by the way, when you see the word therefore, it's a good one to circle. Because it means whatever has been said before, now we're going to get to the point. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. There's only one command in this passage. Um, you may not know this, but the imperative, the only imperative tense, which imperative tense just means command in the language, is the command to make disciples. How do you make disciples? Going, baptizing, and teaching to obey everything. I believe this is what we should evaluate our ministries through. To make disciples, we must first be disciples. That means we love God and we love one another. Those are the marks of disciples. Abiding in the Word, doing what He says, that's part of loving God. Loving one another, all carrying out all those one another commands. That's how you be a disciple. By the way, disciple just means a student endeavoring to become like their teacher. And I don't just mean like following their, like their verbal teachings or written teaching. I mean, you're trying to emulate their life. Who's our teacher? Who does Jesus say we should call teacher? Him, right? No one should call me teacher. No one should call that guy teacher. We call Jesus teacher, right? He's the one we're trying to be like. We are his disciple. So we have to be a disciple in order to then make disciples. 
And we're making disciples of who? Him. And our job is to be a good example of what an imperfect, fallible human being trying to follow Jesus looks like. Which means I'm confessing my sin. I'm talking about my shortcomings. I'm, I'm being open like we have been this weekend. You know why we should be able to do that? Do you see anything on this board anymore? I'm forgiven. Amen. I don't mind getting up and telling you all my junk. Because it's not going to be counted against me. And when I can do that, it disarms you guys, makes you feel like you can. And guess what? That's what God wants us to do. He wants our, he wants our transparency to be what impacts people. He wants the health of our communities to be what impacts people. Because guys, this is our mission. This is our mission. We're to go. We're to take advantage of the opportunities we see as we're going through life. When we see lost people, we need to reach out to them. When we see hurting people, we need to help them. We need to do what the Bible says regarding how to treat a lost world. Love God and love your neighbor. Guys, neighbor includes lost people. This is what Jesus did because He came to seek and to save. Because He came to serve and not be served. And we're trying to be like Him. So go. Guys, baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. That means you teach them to be disciples. Whenever you become a disciple of Jesus, you're saying, I'm giving up my life and I'm letting Him take over. I'm dying to my desires and I'm letting His desires take over. That doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. That doesn't mean you're not going to struggle. But you struggle in the family. And you struggle together. And as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. Your strengths aren't mine. My strengths aren't yours. That's why we need each other. Baptizing. Your sins are forgiven. Acts 2.38 Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will be given the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Who does all leave out? This is for everybody. This, uh, this forgiveness of sin and gift of the Spirit. Becoming a disciple. And then what do you do after you become a disciple? Does it stop? No. No, John 15, I'm the vine, you are the branches. You don't bear fruit unless you remain in the vine. The whole point of becoming a disciple is Jesus... Okay, guys, the gospel is not just about having your sins forgiven, okay? The gospel is about becoming the person God created you to be. And that takes time, and that takes ongoing repentance. That takes... It's like peeling back the layers of an onion. As you mature, every time you overcome one sin, it's like God reveals another. And, and you just keep maturing and keep going. Anybody who says they've made it, they're full of pride. Because you're never going to make it this side of heaven. When you die, Jesus says, I'm going to make you perfect. 
That's when I'm going to make you perfect. Until then, you're a work in progress. So always keep the posture of a learner. I'm always in kindergarten, guys. I'm staying in kindergarten. <laughs> keep that posture. Because we're to learn to obey everything that God has commanded us. And we're to teach others to obey everything God has commanded us. And guys, that never ends. It never ends. And different people have different struggles and they're on different points of this journey. But this is our mission. And this is not a mission that we carry out alone. It's called the Great Co-Mission. It's not called the Great Suggestion. <laughs> it's the Great Commission. It's a command. And it's a cooperative mission. Because he says, I'm not going to leave you alone. I've got all authority in heaven and on earth. Here's what I want you to do. But surely, I'm going to be with you to the very end of the age. Amen. And guys, there's going to come a day when the clouds are going to part and Jesus came in humility the first time. But He's going to come in glory the next time. And the book of Revelation pictures Him as a knight on a horse, shining bright with His sword drawn. He's all tatted up. Like it says, Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And He's got His sword drawn. And darkness is receding. And everything's being made right. And we're going to go into this glory where there's not going to be any tears that aren't wiped away. There's not going to be sickness or disease. There's not going to be elections. Amen. There's just going to be one king and one Lord and one family and eternity to enjoy it. And we're not going to be talking about who were the big shots in history down here. We're not going to be talking about who the innovators of technology were. We're not going to be talking about who made the most money. We're not going to be talking about who accumulated the most possessions. We're not going to be talking about any of the things this world gets caught up in. The foolishness those on the wide road structure their lives around. We're going to be sitting at this long table and every time we, we're going to talk, we're going to talk about the things that were done in the name of Jesus on this earth because that's all that's going to matter in eternity. And we're going to look and we're going to say, you remember that time Talia got up and shared? Yeah. And it opened the door to all this cool stuff. And we're going to click our glasses together and say, yes, done in the name of Jesus. Remember that time Jake got up and he got his heart right and he rapped and those kids came and wanted to come to church with him. Yeah, that's so cool, yeah. And you remember Steve Jobs who? <laughs> you remember Barack Obama, what? You remember Donald Trump, no? Who's that? <laughs> No, that's just going to matter. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Amen. Thank you, guys.